Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hey, Paul, how you doing? Hello, Molly Crapapple. How are you doing? I mean, I suppose I'm as good as a human could be at this particular moment in time. I'm and um, but so delighted to finally be speaking with you after all these years of talking about it. Yes, we 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 finally are finding each other, and I'm very very pleased. And I'm very very pleased, Molly, that you're part of the quarantine tapes. It's really a pleasure to have you um, on this program. Where where do I find you at this moment, and what are you up to during your quarantine? I live in New York City. Um, I live in the financial district, which is emptier even than usual right now. I think uh, many of the rich people in the city have fled to their second homes. And what am I doing at this moment in quarantine? Besides, like everyone, learning how to cook um, and attempting to grow tomatoes on my fire escape in like a weird sort of survivalist garden situation, which isn't very uh, effective. Besides all that, I am just drawing and drawing and drawing. I've drawn probably over 100, 150 pictures uh, since the lockdown started. Well, we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, it was interesting to me that at the, when I asked you that question immediately, you said um, all the rich people who have left the city. And I know that recently you, you wrote a piece in The Intercept about that and again in The Nation. Uh, uh, th this notion of the we and the them, this notion of the people who can escape trying to figure out perhaps how the city will look afterwards from their comfortable position. This is something that you're uncomfortable with altogether. Of course. And the reason, well, there are, there are a number of reasons for it. And first off, I want to say that I know there are many people that had to flee. Uh, for instance, one of my friends is Canadian. And he left because he doesn't have health care in the, in the U.S. And he was just afraid that if he got sick, he'd you know, be left bankrupt. So... You know, no slight on people like that. But there are a few things that disturb me about all the rich people fleeing. Uh, the first, obviously, is that they spread corona all over the country. Uh, you know, it's, that, that's been, been proven. But people, you know, suspected it for a long time before. But the second thing, and I think this is what makes me so angry, is that you had all these people that they came to New York. They drove up the rent, they had a nice time, they changed the city to be the sort of place that would amuse them. And then the moment things got hard, they were like, see you later. They felt like they owed nothing to the city, like they owed nothing to their neighbors, mm. like they owed nothing to mm. the place and the people that had given them these good years. It was this 
astounding lack of solidarity. This this idea that one can just like take a place and then use it and leave and wash your hands of it. You know, I'm I'm born in New York, right? I'm born in Far Rockaway. My um, both my parents grew up in New York. Uh, there are many amazing places in the world that I love. Uh, there are many places I might like to live one day. But when New York is suffering like this, fuck no, I wouldn't leave it. No, I would try to fight for my city and help it as best I could. And I think any rich person who left to their vacation home just should never come back. And then we should take over their apartments. You know, uh, j just to, to, to quote that, that piece you wrote in The Nation, um, where you, you're drawing essential work, as you say, I'm tired of reading interviews with eminent writers where they talk about the lessons we, in quotation marks, have learned from the crisis. By we, they mean financially secure people who work from home and have more time to bake. I, wa I wonder, does this we include the newly immiserated members of the middle class who saw their entire means of making a living disappear? And why does it never include those essential workers whose scorned labor turns the earth? And then you write on, I'm one of the lucky ones. Um, very interestingly put, what will New York look like, do you think, after this pandemic comes to an end or at least uh, subside There are a somewhat. few ways. I, I can picture it turning out in a few ways. My nightmare scenario is that the working class people of the city are completely financially devastated. Many of the middle class people as well. All the small businesses are driven bankrupt. And then you get in some like huge real estate speculation firm, something like you know Blackstone, for mm. instance. And it just comes in, buys up all of the properties belonging, uh, you know, to the small landlords, buys up all those empty storefronts. And then we end up with a city that's like Dubai, but with much shittier infrastructure. Uh, that's like my nightmare scenario. In, in your more hopeful moments? In my more hopeful moments, I think that this can be a moment to seize back the city for its people. So May 1st was... Um, It marked the largest rent strike in America in, I mean, maybe certainly decades, perhaps perhaps a hundred years. Um, there were over 12,000 people that were on rent strike. You saw uh, banners being unfurled from buildings, you know, all over the city. And like, this is of course about the fact that people can't pay their rent, but it's also a rejection of the state that New York forces on us where we can just never ever buy an apartment here because it's too expensive where we are never allowed to really have a home that we can't be booted out of, you know, at a few months notice. It's saying that, no, you know, we people who are not rich, but we people who live here, we have a right to this city and this city is ours and these homes are ours. Um, and I mean, something magnificent and it's something crucial and I think that the very best thing that could happen out of this horrific time is people, ordinary people saying that this city belongs to us and it doesn't belong to real estate it doesn't belong to the mega corporations, it belongs to us like we who live here Two voices in your head my pessimistic and my optimistic vision. 
call them what you will, but probably this vision that you, this bifurcated vision is something that expresses itself in your art. And I'm wondering, you mentioned you've made hundreds of drawings uh, in this uh, <laughs> pandemic moment. Um, what kind of art are you making at this moment? I know you're making signs, you're drawing essential workers. I did all of these portraits of essential workers, yes, and I, I made just a lot of banners for my friends, which is much more like arts and crafts than, than any sort of uh, quote-unquote real art. Um, I did a, a poster for a tenants organization, or not a tenants organization, tenants sort of umbrella organizing group um, that was this vision of like the New York I love, you know, the mm. whacked out old tenements with the crazy fire escapes, the mm. drawing of that with these roses coming out of it. And it was a poster that got used everywhere and we pasted all across the country. Um, people said like cancel rent or whatever. Um, in addition to, to doing, to doing all of those and my usual sort of illustration jobs and animations and all the ways that I, you know, I make my living I've been uh, drawing my friends. There's something about being apart from your friends where you want to just draw closer to them and, mm. you know, Zoom just doesn't cut it, right? Zoom is... Mm. No, <laughs> Zoom it, really, is, it really doesn't. It's horrific. It's you know, I've, 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 I read somewhere somebody saying cogito ergo Zoom. <laughs> you know, it, it really doesn't. It's like nothing. And so instead... I, I don't know, like, I have a friend, for instance, uh, Carolyn, who's an amazing artist, and she is uh, staying with someone she knows in the Chelsea Hotel right now, and she she has been just sending me pictures of herself, and I would, I would draw them, and she just has so much glamour to her, uh, so much total gutter punk glamour to her that it's almost like a form of political discipline, you know? She, and um, seeing seeing her with all of like her beauty and all of her style and all of her like just total, total rebellious punk nature. Um, and drawing her, I don't know. It's like one of the more uh, joyous and life affirming things I could imagine. How wonderful, really how wonderful drawing as a way of, of getting closer drawing as a way of having your friends around you when you can't. I, exactly. I, I, I recently um, discovered that you recently discovered your family's history and the Jewish labor bund. Um, and I'd like you to talk to me a little bit about that uh, for reasons pertaining probably to Israel, that history has largely been obfuscated. It's a history that I, I know a little bit about. My, my parents used to talk to me about it um, a long, long, long time ago. What have the consequences been of that obfuscation, do you think? I had known my great-grandfather. Uh, great-grandfather? My, my great-grandfather, yes. I know, it must seem strange to feel so invested in one's great-grandfather. Oh, no. oh, no, oh, no, oh, <laughs> no, not, not for me, not for me. <laughs> you know, I always, I always like remembering that in Hebrew, the word for tradition and transmission are the same. <laughs> well, I think I feel particularly uh, close to Sam, 
my great grandfather, uh, because my mother is an artist, and Sam taught her how to draw. She was very, very, very close to to her grandpa. Uh, she, you know, grew up surrounded by his paintings, surrounded by his sort of atheistic, humanistic, rebellious philosophy of life, um, and so I grew up surrounded with that too. I grew up. Uh, surrounded with his self-portraits, reading, you know, his self-published philosophy books. And I had always known kind of vaguely that he was involved in um, some sort of revolutionary group uh, back in Tsarist Russia, which he he fled in 1904. But then I was uh, looking through these piles and piles of watercolors that he did uh, that were, he called them memory paintings. And he did them uh, during the Holocaust, uh, when he was safely in New York, as a way of bringing back to life his hometown when it was being murdered. Uh, he, 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 too, he too was painting to bring something close to yes. him. Yes, he painted his whole life. But this was the, before that, it was much more formal, you know, um, pictures of himself in costume or like, uh, you know, streetscapes of New York, um, kind of much more... I don't know, realist, modernist, but during the Holocaust, he was like, no, I want to paint these, these visions of the past from off memory. And, um, they were, they are incredible, uh, journalistic documentary artifacts that show every single aspect of life in his hometown, Volkovsk. They show, uh, the Jewish girls making out with Russian soldiers behind a wall. Uh, they show, um, kids uh, drawing mean pictures of the rabbi in religious schools. They show, um, you know, people stealing. They show people fighting. They show people partying. They show um, acrobats in the town square. They show soldiers at the military garrison being whipped. They show everything, right? And there's one photo, or I'm sorry, one uh, painting that he did that I was so astounded by. It showed a picture of a beautiful girl wearing a little corset and a you know bustled skirt and her hair is all up like a Gibson girl and she's throwing a rock through a window and her boyfriend is standing next to her and he has a a bag full of rocks because you know a lady shouldn't carry her own rocks it might be heavy and it was called Itka the Bundes breaking windows and I was like Bundes you know Bundes what is what is this because my vision of what it was to be a young woman in Belarus in a shtetl in 1899 did not then include the image of a girl going around with her boyfriend smashing windows at night. And so um, I started to uh, do research on the Jewish Labor Bund, which was the revolutionary organization that it belonged to. And the Jewish Labor Bund was at one point, the largest revolutionary organization in, in Tsarist Russia. It was an organization that was socialist, mm. revolutionary, Jewish, uh, proud of, of Yiddish and Jewish culture, though they were atheists, and was anti-Zionist. They believed that home was where they stood, that they had a right to live as equals in Russia or in Europe, that no one should tell them that they didn't belong there. Dias and they di were armed. Di diaspora was home. Diaspora was home. And they were armed. So when they said, you know, here where I stand is my country, the implicit 
lady was backed with, here is, down to my country, and I have a gun to defend it. And I became um, obsessed with, with learning about this group, who, which not only, you know, helped found the Russian Social Democratic Party, you know, the group that eventually you know, ran Russia as the Soviet Communist Party. Not only did they do that, and not only were they um, the largest uh, Jewish political party in Poland between the war, but they helped lead the Warsaw Ghetto Revolt. And so I found this group that was completely interlinked with all of the triumphs and the disasters of Jews in Eastern Europe, but that had been more or less erased from most Jewish people's collective memories. And I became incredibly intrigued as to why. You know, the, the, there's one um, one word you use uh, that I'd like you to unpack a little bit, that the, the, the Bundists adhered to the doctrine, and I'm going to not say this correctly, do ikait or hearness and doikait yeah, yeah doikait doikait tell me a little bit more about doikait you have a little bit already but let's go deeper when the Bundes spoke about doikait they were um, opposing it to um, the Zionist idea that uh, Jews could never live as equals in the diaspora but instead had to go uh, there there being uh, Palestine, and build a, um, an exclusivist Jewish state. The idea of doikite of hearness was that home was where you stood, that you had a right to your home where you stood, that the whole notion of sorting up the world into ethnostates where one person belongs here because he's Jewish, and one person belongs here because he's Polish, and one person belongs here because he's Ukrainian, was something that was fundamentally flawed and, and based in blood, and that people have a right to be wherever they are. And that not only do they have a right to merely be wherever they are, but that they have a right to be themselves wherever they are in all, in all of its fullness and all of its richness. That um, simply because a Jew lived in Russia, they didn't have to forget that they were a Jew. They didn't have to learn Russian if they didn't want to, even though the early boon just spoke Russian as the first language, but you didn't have to learn Russian. You didn't have to change your name, you know, to Martov or Trotsky, so you sounded Russian. You um, could be as you were in, um, in the diaspora, and it was fine. And this is a statement that, in some ways, you know, from the standpoint of New York in the 21st century, might seem a little trite, but it was actually a statement that was a fundamental challenge to all of the ethno-nationalism that was sweeping mm. Europe, mm. all of the notion of sorting people up into mm. neat and bounded states with neat and bounded identities. It was a complete rejection of that. And that's one of the reasons that um, I find it so incredibly appealing and so incredibly relevant. Now, now, I mean, it, it brings to mind all kinds of issues, not, not least of all, might one say, the, the very issue of uh, the building of walls. It made me also think of uh, a painter I, I knew and, and loved who wrote a beautiful book called The Diasporist Manifesto. That's uh, R.B. Kitai. And the whole notion of diaspora and dispersion as a condition of the Jewish people and that the creation uh, of Israel 
um, is uh, very problematic when you think of it from that perspective. I want to talk to you a little bit about the time you spent at Guantanamo and if you if you can describe for our listeners what it felt like to be an outside visitor there. I visited Guantanamo twice in 2013. Um, I had... Uh, just really started doing journalism at that point and Guantanamo was my, my first big story that I had done. Uh, it was a feature for Vice that I, that I wrote. I went uh, the first time to see uh, the military trials of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the other uh, 9-11 uh, planners. Uh, the second time I went to see the prison. When I think about Guantanamo, which is a place that 800 men have uh, passed through. Um, I, I believe, I, I don't have the exact number, but I want to say 70 remained. Only eight people who've went through it have ever been convicted of any crime. It's a place where people were horrifically tortured, some of them tortured to death, where people were gobbled up by the war on terror apparatus uh, merely because they were uh, sold for a reward by American forces. It was the place where there was no irony, where the slogan that is written everywhere on every single barbed wire top wall is honor bound to defend freedom. Mm. Where um, the various camps would be known as Camp Justice. A place where if you ran over an iguana by accident, uh, that could be a $10,000 fine. But where when I was there, every single day, dozens of men were being uh, strapped to uh, chairs and force-fed cans of Ensure. It was the place where the American propensity uh, to be, uh, you know, gigali nice came right up against the American inability to be any sort of good. It was one of the most horrifying places I've ever been. You've, um, you've been working also recently with various political figures, most notably with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and Bernie Sanders. You describe a feeling of solidarity working with them, of solidarity deeper than hope. What do you mean by that? A solidarity deeper than hope. I mean that when, when I was um, on the road with the Bernie campaign, which is something I was immensely proud that I got to do. I'm very, very proud that I got to um, chronicle that campaign withdrawing and also of the just like slogging around door knocking that I did. When um, I was doing that, everyone knew how much they had stacked against them. It, people weren't, you know, starry-eyed and naive and thinking that it would in any way um, be easier, that in any way um, this was assured. But there was a feeling when you were at these rallies that, okay, here are people who might be really different from you. Like, my, my the way I live is really different, you know, from um, a farmer I met in Iowa, for instance. Mm. But that... Um, you had to you had to stand together, and that that by standing together you can make the world better, and that you can fight for something together. And it wasn't that you were like, oh, I hope things will get better and everything is going to be so easy and nice. But 
that if you stood together that you had a chance. That's what I meant by that. You you've been working with well, even even before I ask you that, now that the campaign is over. Yes. What do you think the afterlife will be? A few things. Um some of it um will be negative. I, I think that many people um young people especially have become will become profoundly disaffected with the political process in general. Uh, I knew a lot of you know young people who you know had really kind of put their lives on hold, right? To to volunteer, you know, to like just get in their cars and travel from place to place and I mean a lot of those people felt pretty spit on afterwards. Mm. So my hope is that people, you know, people like that don't give in to despair. Um, the thing that happened after the 2016 campaign was that a whole, um, I want to say like a class of um, young, progressive, often self-identifiedly socialist people ran for office, and some of them won, um, most notably Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. My hope is that the same thing will happen this time, that there will be a generation of people that um, are willing to go through the complete clusterfuck hell of local politics and will and will run again because I don't know what will happen to America, but I do have faith in people being able to govern themselves and make their communities better on a more local level. I saw that in New York when all of these, when all of these like young socialists and young progressives got elected last time and then like they were able to change the rent laws. So, I mean, that's, that's one possible effect. Um, So here again, it's, it brings us back nearly to the beginning of our conversation as we end this one, which is the two sides, really the, the possibility perhaps of, of um, action um, versus uh, disappointment and being disaffected. And I know that you yourself um, are part of the art world in some sense, but also very critical of it in in so many ways. And at the same time, you're, you're published by very prominent uh, newspapers and journals and perhaps very critical also of the media. And there's, there's one... There's one quotation that I love, as you know, I'm a, a quotomaniac by profession. There's one quotation I, I love of Arthur Miller, where he says, don't be seduced into thinking that that which does not make profit is without value. And I'm wondering how you might react to that in closing. Can you repeat the quote again? It's a little louder. I'm so sorry. Um, don't be seduced into thinking that that which does not make profit, is without value. About that quote, a very, very astute one. I suppose I've always been critical of the art world. Um, and I always have you know, divided the art world from art itself. But I've always been critical about the art world, because the art world, in America at least, is something that is so um, built around the... Uh, tastes and needs of millionaires and of billionaires. I mean, the whole financial model, right, is so beholden to that. You to get to rent a gallery in Chelsea, it's so many tens of thousands of dollars every month, right? To um, work for years on a show 
without any sort of financial support and then just put it, put it up, you need to make a lot of money, right? And this um, way that everything in the art world is built around money and built around sales and built around, you know, the taste of people on boards and increasing the valuation of people's collections. I mean, to me, to define what's good art by that is madness. I've always thought that art is something way too big for the art world to possibly contain it. But art is something that encompasses so much more than just the preferences of Yale MFAs and billionaires. So that's always been, been my critique of it. And that isn't to say that I would not like, you know, my own Medici uh, patronizing me and uh, showering me in, in gold, but I cannot possibly believe that the entire field of visual culture and joy can be reduced to that. I like the notion that we, we end with, with the, the word, if we hear it, of joy in these dire, difficult, sort of delirious times. Molly, it's been a pleasure, all too brief, I might say, to speak to you today. I hope we do soon again. I send you a virtual hug, and I hope I'll be able to transform that virtual hug into a real hug when we see each other next. Do take I do good as well. Care. Do take good care of yourself. And thank you. Thank you as well, you. Paul. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you so much. Be well. Thank you so much, Paul. It was my absolute delight. Bye-bye. Bye. To support this show and DubLab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support. Uh-huh.